Hi, everyone. I'm Mel Butcher. And I'm Michelle Redfern. And we're behind the Lead to Soar podcast. We've got a couple really fun things to share with you. And the first thing we want to share is our colleague, Susan Colantuno. She started a podcast called Be Business Savvy. Be Business Savvy. We highly recommend it. And it's a short form podcast where you hear directly from Susan. It's like having a friendly mentor in your ear. So check her out at BeBusinessSavvy.com. Over to you, Michelle. Thanks, Mel. Well, two exciting things from me, along with Be Business Savvy. Number one, The Leadership Compass. My very first book is due for release on March 26, 2024. You can find out more about The Leadership Compass, what it's all about. Of course, it'll be your ultimate guide if you're an ambitious woman leader. You can find more about that at michelleredfern.com. And hand in hand with the Leadership Compass book is the Leadership Compass boot camps. I'm going to do one boot camp a quarter for 2024 for just six women at a time. And you'll be working through in three weeks. So, yes, it's short, sharp, and high impact. All of the elements from the Leadership Compass and my 40 years of executive experience. So, you'll cover BQ, EQ, and SQ, and you will be positioned to have a career that soars. Again, you can find out about the boot camps at michelleredfern.com, leadtosoar.com, or if you can't find any of that, just drop us a line and we'll point you in the right direction. You're listening to Lead to Soar, bringing women the best career advice and mentorship from around the world. Lead to Soar is a production of a career that soars. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. The Lead to Soar podcast is recorded in many places across the world. In Australia, it's recorded on the lands of the Wadawurrung, Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past and present for they hold the memories, the traditions, the cultures and the hopes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across the nation. We also pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. It's my great pleasure to welcome Beverly Behan. We've got a lot to learn from from Bev today as well. I've had the great fortune of, well, I attended your book launch, your virtual book launch, Bev, recently. Got to know you through Susan. And of course, I've got your book, Becoming a Boardroom Star. So as someone who has helped people navigate the boardroom for for a number of years, I felt that it was just a a no-brainer to get you on here and and help our members understand what it takes to be a boardroom star. Because it's not just about the technicalities, although those are important, but it's about the human dynamics as well, which is, I think you do really well in in, in this latest book. So Bev, who are you? What do you do? How do you introduce yourself? So give us a bit of an insight into you and and what you do and how you roll. Well, I guess uh, a couple of weeks ago when the book came out, Chief Executive Magazine called me one of the leading global experts in board effectiveness. So I guess that's who I am. I have been working with boards since 1996. I've worked with nearly 200 boards now. Most of my clients Clients are public companies, S&P 1500, Fortune 500. I don't tend to do a lot of work in the nonprofit space, but I have. The boards I work with are all different industry sectors all across the world, actually. Most of my clients obviously are in North America. I'm Canadian originally, but I've lived in New York for over 20 years. So most of my clients are in North America, but I've done work in the Middle East. I've done work with boards in Latin America, with boards in South 
Southeast Asia and other ports of the world. And in fact, <laughs> I'm in discussions right now with the Ukrainian Corporate Governance Network. They want to translate my book into Russian and they want me to come to Kiev and do a presentation for them next summer. So I think I have the greatest job in the world because I get to work with really smart, impressive, successful people, most of whom are very committed to trying to make a difference in overseeing the companies that they govern. And so it's a privilege for me to help leverage that talent and make the most of boards. Boards certainly did not operate like that in the 20th century. My history with boards goes back to the early 1990s when as an impressionable young lawyer, I saw some boards up close and personal that had real marquee name people on them and they functioned as little more than a country club. And I watched as one of those boards basically destroyed a company that I worked at at the time because of very bad decisions that they made. And I put this squarely at their door and 40,000 people lost their jobs, including a lot of my friends. And I got real interested in boards because I saw how board decisions impact people's lives. And so, you know, for the last 25 years, I've had the privilege of working with people on boards. And my job is to try to make those boards all that I think they should be. It's a a great job. And uh, I'm very lucky to have um, kind of fallen into this line of work. Let's put it that way. I love that backstory, Bev, because I was going to ask you next, so why, what propelled you into this, this line of work, but that story of seeing the worst of board performance. And certainly I've been a governance nerd for some time, got really interested in it way, way, way back. But I think sometimes we forget that, yeah, in the 20th century, it was like a country club. There was, oh, do I have a few board roles? Keep me ticking over whilst I'm in semi-retirement and I'll go to a board meeting on my way to golf or whatever it may be. Forgetting about the fiduciary duties and the custodian, you are the governors of an organisation. So not just there for the shareholders, but of course, you know, it's all about shareholders making sure that, that their investment and particularly the mum and dad shareholders, that their investments are delivering, but also the custodians of the people and the customers of those organisations. And when we look at some of those stories, uh, those backstories about this is the picture of what not good is or of what bad is, you think, wow, we've come a long, long way, really in the space of about 30 years in terms of the importance of the director and the director's role. It's gone from being, I mean, in the 20th century, I think we we used to say directors were like the hood ornament on a Jaguar. Okay. They looked very impressive, but they were functionally useless. And that's what most of them were. They were appointed by the CEO in most cases. They, you know, didn't argue too much. And in fact, if they did, the CEO would find a way to get rid of them. And the pivot point, you know, in the whole world was Enron because when Enron fell, You know, I mean, here in the United States, Enron was considered a real success story. And in fact, Chief Executive Magazine had named Enron one of the five best boards in America in the year 2000. Okay, and then in in the year 2001, the whole thing goes down and it wasn't like they had. I know somebody who was on the board of Enron. It wasn't like they had people on that board that did not know what they were doing. Okay, this guy ran Citigroup in Africa. I mean, these were smart people, but they basically, you know, management lied to them. A whole lot of things went down. They had a lot of best practices, but that didn't help them out in the long run. 
And I think at that point, you know, directors all over the world watched the Enron directors go up to Capitol Hill and they all said, there but for the grace of God go I. And I think that was the big wake up call. And it, it really, you know, had a ripple effect beyond the United States to the whole world in terms of, you know, directors now saying, well, this is, is really serious and this is a real job. This isn't an honor and it isn't, you know, something I'm entitled to because I've had an impressive business career mm. and therefore I deserve a board seat. This is a job. And, you know, you look at people, I mean, I lived in New York at the fall of Lehman Brothers. I watched people clean out their offices, you know, with their stuff in boxes going down the the street. And, you know, and and what was on the board of Lehman Brothers, there was a a woman, I think she was the daughter of E.F. Hutton. She herself had very little financial expertise. There was a Broadway producer. What was he doing on the board of Lehman Brothers, you know? Yeah. But this is is the, the heritage. And we've come a long way in 30 years. But in my opinion, I, I still think there's a long way to go, but it's an exciting place to work because um, it's the top of the house. You're working with great people and you know, you're trying to make those boards all that they should be to deliver value to not only the people that work at the companies, the people that invest in the companies. And we often think about, oh, these are Wall Street people. A lot of times these are people's pension funds. These yep. are what people are relying on. And they're relying on the people in those boardrooms to, you know, call the question and, you know, really bring their expertise to bear to make a difference. Yeah, it's, so the couple of things there. Number one, the Enron story, which I, you know, if, if anyone hasn't learned about Enron, watch. There's a, a show called Smartest People in the Room or Smartest yeah. Guy in the Room, and yeah. it, it's the story of Enron and and what an absolute CF. I won't use the words, but um, and what an absolute nightmare that was. But but there were the signals all along, and the governors, the board directors were were close, and, and they were patsies. You know, they they were there. They were yeah. taught not to to speak up. They were lied to. Absolutely. I mean, I know somebody who was on the Enron board. And he said the CFO lied to his face. So they were so lying. That, and that's that learning. We studied that in, when I was doing my MBA and it became, I guess, one of the many things that got me very, very interested in what does a good board look like? I was already a director at that stage and and I've done a fair bit of development um, from a, a director's perspective. But but what, what I think is important um, and particularly for our members of a career that soars is say that's the old, there are many, many, many opportunities to have a really fulfilling portfolio career, which is a bunch of different things, including being the director of a board. And you don't have to be some old white guy who's really well connected now to get on the board. Now, I will say in Australia, we have a long way to go with our board diversity, a long way. There is still a director's club. And frankly, there's a lot of old white guys being replaced with old white women like me. So we're not seeing that diversity yet. But what we are starting to see is you don't necessarily have to have been a CEO or a CFO of a listed company to get on a board. In fact, what we want to do is hear from different perspectives, particularly those directors who have got connections to communities that represent our customers, our shareholders, etc. So I think there's a really, I find boards so extraordinarily interesting and it's such a big part of, of what I do. But I guess in terms of being a boardroom star, what did what was your advice? What was the best advice you ever got, Bev, about being a boardroom star and why was it good? I'm not sure I'm a boardroom star because I, I consult a board and I consider it a conflict of interest to sit on board, so I don't. You, but you're a star because you're, you're creating the star. So we're just giving you the mantle of a star. I create the stars and I don't do executive coaching, but I create environments and boards that allow people to flourish and make sure that those boards are at the top of their game. That's what I do. So I got interested in doing this in the mid 1990s because I had seen 
this company basically go down the drain because of some really bad decisions. And I won't take up your time talking about what those are. They're actually pretty funny. Then I went back into private practice as an attorney. And in 92, there had been, you know, maybe it wasn't quite as bad as Enron, but there had been some governance scandals in the UK. And in 92, a report was written by a guy named Sir Adrian Cadbury. And he advocated a lot of changes in governance in Britain and a lot of Commonwealth countries like Australia. And I was in Canada at the time. They sort of followed suit and their stock exchanges looked at, you know, proposed guidelines. And frankly, they just parroted what Adrian Cadbury said. But, you know, it was at the time that I was sort of reeling from this experience where I'd seen this board basically destroy this company. And as I was working as an attorney and I was closing deals because I was doing securities and corporate finance, I was meeting boards. And in the same thing, you look at these people's backgrounds, they look very impressive and you actually see them working in the boardroom. They're not impressive at all. It's like this country club mentality, you know, and they're not really very well prepared for these meetings and they're not adding much value. And it's, it's it's like a little social club. So this report came out of the Toronto Stock Exchange. It was called the Day Report. It came out in the wake of Cabri. And I read this thing on English Bay Beach in Vancouver like it was a dirty novel. And I'm reading this thing. And my friends are like, why are you reading? I said, I'm reading this corporate governance thing. And they said, girl, you got to get a light. And I said, you know what? I think I just found my life. This is what I want to do because this thing was a scathing rebuke of the state of corporate governance in Canada. And it wasn't just one or two boards that I bumped into as a young attorney. They were legion. And this was way before Enron. And I said, this is not sustainable and this is not right. And this is what I want to do. So at the time, there was nobody doing board effectiveness work. Like it just wasn't done. Now everybody and their dog is hanging out their shingle. They're a board consultant or their whatever, you know? And I used to see a lot of executive coaches try to, to get into the space. That's fine. I mean, you know, whatever. But at the time I did it, no one had ever heard of it. So probably I would say the best career advice I got was to go into executive compensation consulting. It wasn't because I was particularly interested in that, but it allowed me to start working in the boardroom day in and day out. And it did not take very long from the time I was doing that. One of our clients in Canada, it was one of the big Canadian banks, had a shareholder activist, and I was brought in to consult to their chair CEO on some of those issues. And then from that, he was interested in doing like some cool stuff. And so we did the first ever director, individual director evaluation ever done in a major North American company. It was done in 96. And that was the start of my career. Then I was transferred to New York three years later. And I I went to a meeting here. And this one guy said to me, he was the head of the NACD. He said, I know who you are. You're Matt Barrett's board consultant. I said, yeah, I am. And he said, you've done stuff in Canada, like no one in the United States has ever done it. So I happened to be here at the time that, you know, Enron fell and suddenly I'm getting quoted in the Wall Street Journal all the time. And, you know, I was just years ahead because I had sort of seen this. I'd seen this personally when I lived in Vancouver. And so I guess the best career advice I got was to, you know, be in the boardroom day in and day out as a comp consultant. And then when I moved to New York, I gave up compensation. I just have done board effectiveness ever since. 
Yeah. I guess your your interests are your passion and what was happening in the world and, and your expertise all collided. So I think it, it is interesting to see how having an interest in business and having an interest in, in, in governance, but also, as you said, grounded in, in some fairly crappy experiences propelled you. But you took notice of what was going on and went, okay, I think this is it. I think this is my calling and went after it. I guess the, so you talked about you sit in boardrooms and you, you have a look at boardrooms stars or you try you this is your job is to create boardroom stars that's really not how it works I do a lot of I do a lot of work around what's called board evaluation Okay. And I don't use this tick the box survey junk to do that. I interview everybody on the board and everybody in the senior management team that works with the board. And I interview them for an hour. Mm. I don't like sitting in the room. They all play to the camera. Okay. So you'll come out of the meeting and the chairman will say, wow, Fred hasn't said anything for two years. And all of a sudden he's on fire in there today. Right. Because I'm there. (laughs) So I I don't, you know, I used to think it was a cool idea, but I, I never found that work very well. But when you interview people and really Boardroom Star came from those interviews, I have interviewed literally thousands, probably 2000 directors over the course of the last 25 years. I interview them all in confidence and I ask them, what are the things that make, you know, the people you think are the real stars on your board? What impresses you about them? What makes them add value? What makes you say, wow. I think that's our best director. And contrary, you know, the people that you don't think are adding a lot of value, what is it that's detracting from your view of them and what is getting in the way? And having done thousands of these interviews, I've got a pretty good idea about uh, what those things are. And what's really interesting is that it is totally global. And I've worked, you know, with boards in different parts of the world. And when I wrote a manuscript for becoming a boardroom star, I sent it to someone in Latin America. I sent it to someone in Kuala Lumpur. I sent it to someone in Tel Aviv. I sent it to someone in France and they all came back and they said, this is exactly right. This is exactly what I see. And I was like, this thing's not North American, it's global. And I also think that it doesn't just apply. I mean, most of my work is done in the public company world in you know, the S&P 1500, but I think it applies to private companies. I think it applies to, you know, it applies to you whether you're in the board of the Fortune 100 or if you're in the board of a local charity or college. I think there is absolute adaptation, even though it was developed in a public company context. So with all of those interviews and all of that research, that 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 qualitative research you've been able to do, there are two key elements, aren't there? There are two key elements of how to be a true boardroom star. So what are those elements? What are those attributes? And and then for our members, how do they go about developing those two key attributes? Well, we could talk about those for a long time, but the two key attributes really are that a boardroom star is first and foremost someone who makes a real contribution when they're in the boardroom. So they're adding value. They're bringing in good insights and comments. They're asking great questions. They're helping the board canvas all aspects of the issues that they're looking at to make the best decision that they can. And sometimes that decision is, no, we're not going to go along with management's proposal. And sometimes that decision is management's being too conservative and we need them to you know, be more open. So it's someone who adds real value in the boardroom. I would say that is the number one attribute of a boardroom star. But number two is that a board is a governance team, okay? They make group decisions. And when you're an executive, you're used to being sort of a star is somebody who makes those decisions, okay? In the boardroom, power is influence. 
Okay. So it's when you're making those contributions, that's how you build power is that when you're making good contributions, people look at you, they want to hear what you have to say. If what you have to say all the time is kind of off the wall stuff, or it's clear that you don't, you haven't taken the time to learn about the business and you haven't kept up to date with what's going on. People know that. And not only does the board know that, the executive team knows that. So that's like the first bucket. The second bucket though, is that governance is a team sport. So people that want to sort of show everybody how smart they are and grandstand in the boardroom, they are not held in high regard at all. In fact, they come across as very insecure, needy, and you know, a real boardroom star becomes what I call a boardroom champion, which is someone who advances the effectiveness of the board as a team. And the more you ascend into board leadership positions, first of all, chairing a board committee, because that's usually if you're on a board, the first thing you're going to be doing, you're going to be chairing the audit committee, the comp committee, the nom committee, the finance committee, whatever it is. Okay. That's your opportunity to sort of assume a leadership position, which means it's the effectiveness of your committee that you're in charge of not only your individual contributions. Now, that doesn't mean that you stop making individual contributions, you need to do both. And again, if you then go even higher, you become chair of the board or lead director or whatever that is, then your responsibility for the effectiveness of the board as a whole is again, even more important in a board leadership role. So it's those two things. It's an individual star, somebody who's making really good contributions, but they're also a great team player. And I've seen a lot of examples of people who may be good team players, but they're not making much in the way of a contribution. Somebody may he likes them, but they don't really have the genuine esteem of their peers. On the flip side, you'll see people who are really brilliant, but they kind of grandstand. They're kind of nasty. They really aren't making an effort as part of the team and they are not held in high regard either. So I think it's those combination of things. As as you were talking, I was mentally mapping my way through a number of boards that I've been on and some very, very effective boards and some uh, not as effective boards. Um, And certainly, and I've been very fortunate to be the chair of a board of a financial provider, financial services provider and a startup. And and I hear you because as the chair, you've suddenly, well, we talk about engaging the greatness in others. So you've got to engage the greatness in all of the others at an individual and and as a group level. And it is leadership, but in a very, it's in an evolved form, I guess, or in a different form to yeah that executive leadership that, that that we've been used to which brings me to my next part of my question and I think this is about some of this actionable in advice we can give to our our members one of the big transitions I had to make which I I, prob- I don't know that I did it um, as quickly as I could have done is taking off my management hat and putting on my director's hat because I wanted to get involved and be and do and and so you know I be I think in in probably my first couple of roles, I was one of those annoying directors that wanted to get involved in operations and in management. I I, I didn't obey or I didn't adhere to that tenuous fine line between being very, very interested and aware of the company, but leaving it to management to run it, but being a governor, being a director. So how do you see people getting it wrong? And what can we do to, to get it right, both from a director's perspective, but also for, I mean, there's a lot of our members and I'm, I can see a couple of them on the call today who are dealing with boards, who are dealing with directors. How do you deal with that director that can't kind of get their management hat off? Well, let, let's start with people coming into boards because Michelle, what you've identified, that mastering the line between management and governance is 
the single biggest challenge for every director when they transition from an executive role to go on their first board. That is it. And there's all these cute little sayings, oh, nose in, fingers out. What does that really mean? Okay. I don't know. You're sitting in the middle of a meeting, all this stuff's coming up. Where's the nose? Where's the fingers? I don't know. And, you know, then you'll have these law firms and they'll hand out these descriptions. I don't find any of that helps people at all. The best tool I've ever seen is a board buddy. Now, they're pro- you probably have them in Australia, probably use them in Australia. We use them in the States. I saw board buddies kind of come into play here about 10 years ago. And the original idea of a board buddy, and it's a good idea just for this, its original incarnation, which is, you know, if you're a new director, even though you go through orientation, what have, there's a lot of politics and history of some of the stuff that's gone on in the board. And if you don't know that, you can kind of step in it, frankly, and it can help you to decide how you're going to approach. But no one's going to teach you that in orientation. In fact, management usually leads orientation. They don't even know half the stuff. So the idea was to partner up a newbie director with a longer serving director. And then if you do it right, if you do it wrong, the incumbent director just says, oh, call me if you have any questions and it's a joke. But people who do this right, The pair is very religious about scheduling. Now you would do a Zoom, but it could have been a call or meeting. And it was about like two days before the board meeting. So it was after the board materials came out, they'd both had a chance to read them. And then what would happen is the incumbent director would tell the newbie, hey, on this item here, you need to know a little bit about the background just so you're aware. And it also stopped the newbie from asking sort of dumb questions in the board. Right. And what I started to notice happening about five years ago is that newbie directors who had never been on a board before were using their buddy, the incumbent, to test questions to see that they were on the governance side of the line instead of the management side of the line. And it worked really well. So they would go through and the newbie would say, hey, on item number three, I want to ask this. And the incumbent director could say, that's perfect. That's governance question. Great question. Or they could say, you know what? You're a little down in the weeds. Let's talk about what you want to try to get at. See if we can put this another way. Or that's just way too down in the weeds. Now, in my experience, after these people had done this for like, I don't know, a year, frankly, about like five or six times, most people are really smart. They'd mastered the line. And it was much better, I felt, than working with someone outside, like, you know, an executive coach sort of person, because they weren't in the meeting. Whereas getting this kind of guidance from someone who was on the board, and also, you know, if they really stepped in it during a meeting, the buddy would say, you went a little too far into the weeds today. And I have found that is the best tool I've ever seen. And after you've done that with a really good, now it requires that your buddy has to know that governance management line themselves. And as I've said in the book, that is such a hard line to master. And there is very little support actually given to new directors along that, unless you have a board buddy system and it's well-developed like that. So I just sort of said, look, if it is something you're struggling with, let's say you've been on a board two or three years, go to somebody on the board that you like and that you trust and that you think knows the line and say, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I need a little help. And you can either meet before or you can debrief after. And you could say, do you think I was on the right side or or not? And, you know, once you go up that curve, 
then you've nailed it. You've got it for the rest of your life. You, you pretty much have it, but it is a learning curve and it does not come by osmosis. So I find that's the best tool I've seen to help people with that. When when I was reading about that in in your book, I have I have had the experience of a board buddy, unofficial, but this person really helped me. He is a great mentor of mine, but he was also able to help me navigate some of those dynamics with a parent board as well as uh, you know it was a it was a tricky situation. So I, I agree. I think it's a a really really good strategy. And for those of you listening in now or or, or later on, if if you get yourself on a board, don't wait to have a board buddy appointed. Make your own assessment get a board buddy yourself, find someone that you have that you know is effective and ask them, just say, can you do that? That Particularly the pre-briefing. I think we talk about pie mentoring and you know that getting ready for a meeting, talking to someone who knows, you know, what's on the agenda, how, you know, who's going to have power in the room who wants to influence why are we why are we looking at these decisions what should i be paying attention to that preparation for meetings with a great mentor a strategic mentor is such a game changer for capability building it's great advice and, I, um, and also even if you're on a board and you're new on the board so you don't really know the other people you might have met them during the interviews and they don't have a board buddy system you can go to the chair of the nominating and governance committee and just say Hey, look, I, I would just like a board buddy. I've read about it. I think it would give me some background on the issues, could help me on that governance management line because they know they should know their people pretty well. And they'll usually choose somebody that they think would do a good job for you. It's great advice. I'm Mel Butcher, and I want to talk to you about Project Best Self. Project Best Self is a goal setting and habit formation intensive. Together, we'll get clarity on our goals, set up the systems we need to be successful in those goals, and provide support to one another in our cohort in this intensive. I'd love to see you inside Project Best Self. Come join us. Learn more under the courses section inside A Career That Soars. We've got some of our members on live and I want to hand over the microphone to our members for any questions that they have, because as always, as I say, every time I interview an amazing woman, I could keep peppering you with my questions forever, but it's not all about me. So for our members on the call, are you already a boardroom star? Are you an aspiring boardroom star? What advice? You know, you've got this amazing credentialed woman here. What would you like to ask her? I'm happy to go. I don't know if I'm aspiring, but I am looking for my first board role. So my youngest son started year seven this year, which is high school. So it's less stress for me to do after school care and things like that. So I thought it was an opportune time to, to look at board. So I have started to, I've done my board resume, which is totally different to my day-to-day resume. Also made me realise that I do organise a lot and, and you know, whether it's been in communities and schools and sports with my three children. And then in my corporate career, I have applied for a couple of roles and I'm funnily enough, got interviewed with the Victorian government for one, one of their divisions. You know, I, it's exactly what you were saying around been a different person of I'm used to doing and managing and getting things done is trying to get my mind and um, mindset around the governance and overseeing. So I guess it's me just practicing how to do that. Well, I think a board buddy would probably be good you know, mm. when you get on, on the board, because Angela, once you make that transition and somebody helps you through that transition, then it's a skill. You're going to have that for the rest of your life. 
So it's worth that investment. And if you go on a board and they don't have that program, go to somebody, go to the whoever recruited you, usually the head of the non-gov committee or whatever, and just say, look, I'd, I'd really like to do this. I'm, I'm new and I'm sensitive to the fact that that governance management line is a transition for most people. And I want to make that effectively. They'll respect you for saying that. And they'll probably assign you somebody really good. Like Michelle yeah. worked yeah. with this guy, Chris. So that would be like my best advice to make that transition. And I think I'm also looking at things that I'm passionate about, or I've got, you know, it's something that I want to affect change for future generations. So I'm very picky in what I'm doing as well, or what I'm looking at, because I think for me personally, that's important. Well, I think particularly if you're going to go on nonprofit boards, I think that that's, you know, that's really about commitment to the mission of the organization right? If you're looking at going on a for-profit board, okay, you're early enough in your career that that could be a good thing for you just depending on where you plan to go. Like, for example, I've worked with a number of CEOs who actually sat on public company boards earlier in their careers, just one, okay? And then that helped them when they were CEO because they understood the other side of the board table. Yeah. Now, The first question is, will your current company employer, are they okay with you sitting on an outside board? Because many are not. You know, for many years, for example, Disney would not allow any of their people to sit on any outside boards. There's the number of reasons for that. They're afraid that you're going to go on the board of Enron. Suddenly that's going to blow up and reflect back on their company because one of their executives went, you know, on this board. Secondly, they might say, hey, Angela, we're paying you a lot of money and we want your full share of mind here at company X that, you know, because to be on a public company board is about 250 hours a year. Okay, so it's about a month. And so some organizations are like, yeah, we we want her full attention here. We don't want her sitting. You can sit on a nonprofit. That's okay. But, you know, we don't really want you in the big leagues. But on the other hand, you will sometimes find CEOs and board members that think it's the best professional development experience they can provide for somebody at a certain level of their career. They also recognize it's going to make you better working with your own board at your company because you know what it's like to sit on the other side of the boardroom. So I think that's what you need to kind of just see where do they stand. And and the other thing is if you find that they're very supportive of you and they might be, they might say, wow, this is a great professional development thing. We think it's great. Or they might not be, I don't know. But if they are, they might even help you find a board. It is, yeah. and it's about that conflict of interest that I want to do. It's the hours. So the, for my first role, I don't want to commit to a 250-hour-a-year, something smaller that I can chunk, you know, get bite size and I guess dip my toe in the water. But it's definitely around a line into my, my, my day-to-day role and making sure there's no conflict of interest. And, in fact, it could be something that enhances my role. Well, two things that I, I wanted to pick up out of that that advice you gave, Bev, and, and how you're replaying it, Angie, is number one is time. Even your local community organization, you're going to spend one to two days a month in in effect. So you've got, this will take time. So you've actually got to plan and schedule. Say, have I got the capacity? Now for community organizations, often meetings are going to be out of hours, weekends and things like that. So I think number one, irrespective of the boards, and I've been on community grassroots ones right through to, you know, uh, you know, for-profit, et cetera. And so there's that time commitment. So you need to allow for it. So that's number one. The second one is in 
What I saw work really well when I worked for one of the big four banks in Australia, what we had was a, a recognition that we wanted to get more, develop more women leaders. And part of that was to build board skills for all of the reasons that you set out, Bev. So what we had the opportunity to do was join subsidiary boards of the organisation. So if you put your hand up and said, I want to do the, the company director's course, I'm interested in being a director. The way that organisation said was, okay, we also don't want you going and joining one of our competitors' boards or you know, a, a customer of our competitor or whatever, but we've got all of these companies that we also own, our subsidiary companies. We'll get you to participate in those boards. So it kept it in the family, but also was distant enough for you to start building those skills. So for some of you in those kinds of organisations, that might be an option. Figure out if your organisation's got subsidiary boards and say, hey, is this something I can get myself involved in? And some have foundations also, which is, you know, it's a nonprofit, but it's, you know, like very often companies that do an IPO take a certain percentage of the proceeds and they use it for a foundation for community purposes. And they're lo- they're often looking for their employees that are willing to sit on those boards. So it's a different experience sitting on a subsidiary board than it is to be on a public company board, but it's not a bad way to sort of go in. So I'm really glad you brought that up, Michelle. I think it's an excellent suggestion. I've got a question, Bev. Advisory boards. And because we, we've seen a proliferation of startups, you know, that the startup ecosystem is ubiquitous. So I've certainly had the opportunity to be on a couple of advisory boards, which again is a different dynamic again. So what's your advice there? Well, again, it, you know, as we just talked about with, with Angela, it's a lot of commitment to sit on a public company board. Now, startups are a little different animal. And in the book, I talk about different archetypes of boards. When you have a startup, you often have a founder and they surround themselves with people, often people they know well, and they're like almost a quasi-executive team because they haven't really built out the infrastructure of their executive team. And so this board operates in startup boards operate in what I call hands-on mode where the board, it's not uncommon for the board and board members to actually be making management level decisions, okay? And so, you know, let's say you have someone with a legal background on the board, well, they're almost acting like general counsel. Or if you've got somebody with a branding background on the board, they're doing the marketing strategy. If this was happening at the board of one of these big banks in Australia, I mean, management would be apoplectic. But in the startup world, that's how it rolls. And it's actually kind of fun. The challenge that happens with those boards is inevitably the founder, you know, just doesn't have the skills and expertise to take the company to the next level. The board ends up bringing in somebody and that person is often from a larger organization and they see this board operating in hands-on mode like a quasi-management team and they say, get this thing off my back. I can't deal with this. And so migrating the startup board to a more, you know, governance, to be a governance board is challenging, but it can actually be fun to be on a startup board. It's just a little different animal, just like being on a, um, being on a subsidiary board or even a nonprofit board. It's a little different animal. So one thing I always say to people that start their careers in startup boards, and then they get offered, 
you know, more traditional mid-cap or even something in the, you know, Fortune 1000 say, well, they operate differently. It's a governance board. So again, if you go in from a career sitting on the boards of startups, you're going to find that that governance management line is challenging for you because you thought you knew where the line was. And in the startup organizations, it's in a different place. Yeah, great advice. And I know one of the boards, that the advisory board that I was on, it was in, in a startup, a financial startup. We just said, we are, our charter is to go, we're going to be in existence for 18 months. And at the 12 month period, we're going to start transitioning to build a governance board because we'll be at the maturity level. And we also had that conversation with the CEO to say, you are the startup CEO. And at that point, we're going to evaluate the size we are, the impact we're having, where we're going to next with our strategy and who the right people are for the right role. So yeah, I I, I find it, I think advisory boards are really fun, but they are very, very different. So Bev, I have been the recipient of gender targeted gender recruitment. So three of my board roles, uh, sorry, two of my board roles, one of my executive roles. And I know that you tackle this uh, situation because I don't reckon there's a better time now for women to step into governance for all of the reasons that, that, that you've laid out. Organizations across the world are finally realizing, albeit at different paces, some of them glacial, but they're realizing that this diversity around the boardroom table is absolutely critical for achieving and sustaining extraordinary outcomes. However, you've got a woman that you call Jennifer in your book, and she says, oh, I don't want to be asked, I don't want to join a board just because of my gender. What's your advice to the Jennifers of the world? In, in the situation with Jennifer, she actually did join the board. Okay. But, and Jennifer is somebody who had wanted to be on a board for a really long time. Okay. And she had a board CV and she was whining and dining people that she knew in her network, trying to get herself a board seat. And then all of a sudden, well, what happened here in the United States and frankly, in other parts of the world over the last 18 months, I mean, there were all these movements towards diversity. So if you look at say the S&P 500 here in the United States, okay, 40%, more than 40% of the recruits have ethnic diversity, more than 40% of the recruits have gender diversity, largely women. And so we've seen all this recruitment at an unprecedented level here. And why I wrote Becoming a Boardroom Star quite candidly is that I had friends and Jennifer was one of them. We'll call her Jennifer. And they called me up and they said, I've just finally been recruited to the board of X. And they said, and I don't want to be a token. I want to be a really great director. Tell me what I need to know in order to hit it out of the park in the boardroom. So I started having these conversations with people who were my friends because I was thrilled that they were on boards and I was thrilled that their objective was to really be a great director. And of course, that's what my friends would want to do. Um, And that's where Boardroom Star came from, was that I started having these conversations. And after about the third one, I went for a walk in Central Park and I said, you know, I think it's time for me to write this because I just think there's people that need to hear this. And, you know, we are at an unprecedented place in terms of diversity recruitment. And, you know, my view is I would like these boards who really drag their feet about recruiting women and recruiting, you know, people of color, what have you, to turn around two years from now and say, wow, recruiting this person is the best decision we ever made. They are an awesome director. Like to me, that's when you have real diversity because 
those people are having real impact as well in the boardroom. So that's what the book was written about. Let's get back to the Jennifer example. So mm. Jennifer is somebody who wanted to be on a board. She called me up, told me she got on a board. And then she was very sort of sour about it. She said, well, I think the only reason they recruited me is because I'm a woman. And so I said, well, Jennifer, let's just, do you still want to be on a board? Oh yeah, you know, you know that I've been busting my hump to try and get a board for three years. Okay, great. Do you like this company? Yes, I love this company. It's this really exciting company. It's great technology. I love the CEO. I'm like, so you want to be on the board? And I said, you're just a little sour because you think they recruit you because you're a woman. But I said, they made a decision to recruit you. They chose you. So prove them right. Prove to them that they made the right decision to recruit you. And that a year from now or two years from now, they say that was the best damn decision we ever made was to recruit Jennifer. And, you know, that's what I would say, not only to people who are recruited for the first time onto a board, even for people that are being renowned nominated onto a board. You know, sometimes I think people take it for granted. Oh, I'll just keep going on the board. No, the board makes a decision to recruit you. And there are so many people that want to be on boards, but they chose you. They chose to nominate you and they chose to recruit you. And you have a role where you make a real difference for the people at that company, for the people that work there, for the impact that company has in the economy, in the community, and for the people that invest in that company. And it is an important role and prove them right, that they made the right decision in giving that to you. I, I love it. I uh, so you you've given a very eloquent, elegant way, version of what I say to women when they say to me, "I've only you know been." I say, "Just get out of your own damn way, take the damn role, and get on with it." So yeah, it's absolutely, absolutely bang on. Prove them right. Mel has said she loves this discussion. Her only question of you, Bev, is are you looking to hire a successor? No, I'm not. I, I, you know, here's the thing. I get approached all the time by people who want to, you know, work with me. And when I was a partner at two different large consulting firms, I'll be honest with you, people that didn't know the first thing about boards all weighed in on my projects and they built my clients full freight so that they could learn. Um, the boardroom is not a place for those that don't know what they're doing. And I think that they choose who they want to work with based on their credibility. And I've just found that I, I am my own practitioner and rightly or wrongly, you know, I've had people that said, you should build your practice out. You should do all of that. And I remember saying to one guy, and he was a comp consultant who had done that. And he'd built a very large practice. It was starting cannabis it's all over the place. Now he's got people in the United States. But I said, you know, Ken, I, I never wanted to build an empire. I only wanted to change the world. So, Well, Bev, you, you and I are very aligned in our view because uh, I, I'm the same. I don't want an empire. I just want to change the world. And in our own ways, we're doing that. I really appreciate the advice, the actionable advice that you've given us today and, and our members. And there are a heap more. So tell me about the books, because uh, I'm going to put the links to all of your books, because this Becoming a Boardroom Star is not your only book. You've got a whole bunch of them. But uh, so tell us about your books, where okay. we can get them. So Becoming a Boardroom Star came out at uh, the end of September. It's on Amazon. It's on Amazon worldwide. It is available in Australia. It's available all over the world on eBook, on paperback. And I did an audiobook. This was my first audiobook I ever did. And I'm pretty sure the audiobook is worldwide now. It came out in the States about a week and a half ago. So, and it's on Audible and um, things like that. So that's Boardroom Star. And hopefully what you'll find is that it's it's a quick, easy read. It's kind of a fun read. There's a lot of anecdotes. I, know, I don't, you know, I disguise names, obviously, but, and so people I think are enjoying it. It's, you know, often when you read governance books, they're just so dull and I try not to write 
write that sort of thing because I don't think it's not. It's a quick. It is a weekend read, but it's it's like it is very much like no ceiling, no walls. It's one that you'll go back to particular chapters to go. Well, what was that thing about? You know, yeah. So I I feel I think it'll be. It's a good. It is a. It is a good anecdotal read, but also a reference to come back to time and time again. Thank you. So my. Most well-known book is uh, called Great Companies Deserve Great Boards. It's sort of considered a governance classic. It first came out in uh, 2011, was named Governance Book of the Year in the United States in 2012. And I recently got reversion rights to it back from my publisher. So we are literally going to be putting it out, hopefully within the next three to five weeks. And it will be coming out on Amazon, in ebook, in a hardcover, which may take a little longer. And we're also going to do an audiobook for this one. So if you're thinking of buying it, honestly, don't buy it now because my publisher has it at $78, which is ridiculous. I'm going to put it out probably under 30. So uh, for the hardcover and the ebook and the audiobook will be way less. So that's that one. And then this is one that hasn't come out yet, but it's going to come out hopefully in January. It's called New CEOs and Boards. And it's uh, specifically, you know, one of the most challenging transitions for someone in becoming a CEO is that they don't have a boss anymore. They have this whole group of people. And that is a transition that most CEOs underestimate. And they've got so many priorities. Oh, the first 100 days, now it's the first 90 days, now it's the first 75 days, whatever it is. And the board kind of, you know, isn't at the top of the heap. That's okay. But your relationship with your board will make or break your career as a CEO. And very often, uh, you're not getting a lot of guidance. You might have one or two people on the board. They're all anxious to give you ideas. But, you know, sometimes you'll have a real champion chair. And sometimes you'll have what I call a preservationist, who is somebody that just wants to hang on to that board seat as long as possible. And they're not really going to give you the kind of advice you need. So this is a book that's specifically for new CEOs. And then it also talks about I've never met a CEO that didn't want to change their board when they're totally honest. Okay. They might not say that to the board. Sure they do, but a lot of them don't know how to go about it and they make really clumsy mistakes. And I see the same mistakes all the time. So there's a a whole section in there about, you know, leading from behind, which means you have to understand the processes that change boards effectively. And then you lead your board to those processes. So that's Mm -hmm. a new book. That book will be coming out in January and um, it's uh, we're sending advanced copies of that around now. If you're, interested in that one, we could probably try to find a way to get it to you before it comes out. Awesome. Well, consider me yes to anything that you're writing, Bev, because they are very, very practical, useful tools with, again, those actionable insights. So for each one of us, we can just take, if we take one thing away from every conversation we attend in a career that soars or these books, that's the thing that this is, this is that discipline of skill building um, so that you become a star, whether it's in the boardroom, as a CEO, as an executive. So Bev, your wisdom is amazing for our members. We have an on-demand course that you can tap into more of Bev. Bev's wisdom. Uh, so Susan has has curated that for us with Bev and particularly around not-for-profit or for-purpose boards. Bev, amazing to catch up with you again. Terrific conversation. Thank you to our members who, who chimed in. I, I know that there is just so much wisdom be gained. But I've got to say my my big, big takeaway, if you are Jennifer thinking, I just don't want to be there because I'm a woman, get over yourself and prove them right. Bev, Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, Michelle. It was a real honor to uh, be on your show and to meet your members. And thank you so much for inviting me. I'm Mel Butcher, and I want to talk to you about the Ascend Workshop. 
Ascend is a workshop I created for early career professionals who are ready to take the next steps in their career. The next step could be aiming for a promotion and salary raise, or it could be looking for the next step up in another organization. Together, we'll cover using emotional intelligence in the workplace, getting our communication on point, understanding mentorship and sponsorship and how to get it, and positioning ourselves for the next step. I'd love to see you inside the Ascend Workshop. Learn more under the Courses section inside A Career That Soars. This has been another episode of Lead to Soar, a production of A Career That Soars. You can reach Michelle Redfern at michelleredfern.com and Mel Butcher at melbutcher.com. Join us inside A Career That Soars at acareerthatsoars.com. 